You may have heard of Steve Robbins from his number one business podcast, The Get It Done Guy. He is a featured expert in Harvard Business School Publishing's Harvard Managed Mentor and is the only certified NLP Master Trainer Elite that I know of. I am very excited to have him as my guest on today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. So I am here with Stever Robbins. Stever, welcome. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So welcome to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Now, I am actually thrilled and slightly intimidated to have you here because, I mean, you're you're bio is incredible. Um, but also you've been really actually doing it. You're not just somebody who takes a lot of courses and gets a lot of degrees and things. You're, you're out there getting it done. I am indeed. In fact, in fact, you're known as the get it done guy, I think. Is that not true? It's a little podcast that I had for 12 years from 2007 to 2020 when I stepped down from hosting it. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't like to blow my own horn, but it was the number one business podcast on iTunes for several years. And wow, you know, even really? when podcasting became popular, it dropped down just, you know, just into the top 100. Uh, but no, it, 36 million downloads. Um, uh, as of the, the time that I left, it was a, it was a great run. It was a lot of fun. It gave me a chance to learn way more than any human being should possibly know about personal productivity. And it taught me how to write and it taught me how to make up characters and storylines, because unlike a lot of things on personal productivity and a lot of podcasts and writing, which I find ridiculously boring, um, I had characters and subplots and zombie apocalypses and things, be, you know, that all that all factored into to the, the, the whole, you know, how do you be productive? Because just for the record, anyone out there who's thinking of raising a zombie army you need to understand that zombies deteriorate in sunlight, right? Rotting flesh, hello, right, right, which hello. means you need refrigeration units. <laughs> you need someone picking up the pieces that drop off. Then you need to match those pieces back to the zombie they dropped off from. The logistics, they always, they always blip over that part in all of the yeah. zombie movies. They never show you the refrigeration tanks or the formaldehyde chambers. Or, oh, my God. Yeah. When but, you, you stop know. and think about it, it's really it's just not worth it. I'm just not going to do it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There's much, much better ways of taking over the world. <laughs> and somehow I suspect you, you know them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me. Maybe. <laughs> oh God. So Steve, um, NLP is something that you and I both have, have in common. We've been trainers. Uh, you are a certified elite master trainer or something like that of, of NLP, which apparently is, a thing I didn't realize it until I read your bio, but uh, you are one of the I guess eighteen in the world who are certified master trainer elites. That's I've been told there are eighteen. I don't know who the other ones are. It, it is apparently a I, I was a certified master trainer, and then one day Richard Bandler certified me as a master trainer elite, and yep. he basically said he said this is the next step up. I only give them out individually based on each 
person's personal achievements and uh you know that's it so wow i'm impressed um uh, just for the record i i was never bestowed upon that it's just suffice it to say like wow um let me ask you this though when it comes to training you i mean you you have an mba from harvard you I mean you mm -hmm. you're yeah, you're you're not just an uh, an your run of the mill NLP guy. You 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 you've got some stuff in. I your, have some chops. <laughs> yes. Yes. Indeed. So, where does NLP come into this for you? Like when you get to the CEO level and the C-suite stuff, I mean, where does NLP actually have a function? So it's a really interesting question because what I find does what I find has much less of a function at in the way that I use it. I want to be clear about that. In the way that I use it, I don't sit down with people and say, close your eyes. Now we're going to ankle a resourceful state and whatever. I mean, I will do that on a, you know, once a year or less, maybe. But what I do use, the NLP, the NLP concept of strategies and strategy elicitation, I use that both on an individual and on an organizational level. So if I'm working with somebody who's a CEO of an organization and they say, wow, you know, my team isn't performing well. I will then do what is in essence an NLP strategy elicitation on, you know, kind of on the, the CEO and the team. And if you want, I'll talk you through an example. Yeah, please. I'd love to know. Sure. So CEO comes to me and says, my team is not performing. Okay. Now, as you'll recognize from NLP, that's actually a vague statement that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So I say, this is my version of the meta model. At some point it becomes so ingrained, you don't have to use the, the formulaic challenges, but, mm -hmm. but the meta model challenge would be how specifically is your team not performing? Or how do you know your team is not performing? And uh, what the CEO said was, was they aren't demonstrating the level of urgency that I want them to demonstrate. And so again, from an NLP perspective, I realized that the phrase demonstrating urgency is, I mean, what the heck does that mean? So it's an unspecified verb in NLP terms. I'd say, dude, what do you mean they're not demonstrating urgency? Can you give me a specific example of a time when they should be demonstrating urgency but aren't and tell me what they should be doing and what they are doing? So I'm immediately trying to drive it down to behavior. Now, this isn't necessarily a behavior of one particular individual. This is a behavior of the team, but I'm still approaching it as if the organization is one individual. Mm -hmm. And he might say something like, when they get together and we talk about the forecast for the next quarter, you know, nobody talks about this competitor that has just introduced a new product into our marketplace. So I now go, okay, he has just told me which step of the strategy is missing for him. And this is again at an organizational level is that to him, what it means for a team to have a sense of urgency is that com is the competitors are being brought up at strategic planning offsites. So then I just start digging around. And again, I mean, this is to, again, to me, this is just pure NLP stuff. I'm like, okay, how specifically, how specifically should those things being get, be, get, be, how should those things be getting brought up? Is there a particular person who should be bringing them up? Should the group itself be raising that question? Is that a question that should be on the agenda every time you do a quarterly offsite? Like, tell me what is the mechanism by which that question should even be asked, right? He may not have even thought about that. So at this point, we're, you know, we're now into him maybe going, oh, I just assumed that Meredith would bring it up. And I would say, well, why would Meredith bring it up? You know, oh, because well, she lives next to the factory of the competitor. And I, and, you know, and at that point, 
I kind of switch out of NLP mode and I just look at him and I raise an eyebrow and I go, you're telling me that your competitive analysis should depend upon who lives next door to the factory of your competitor? Really? And then of course they get all sheepish and they go, okay, fine. I guess we should put in place some sort of actual systematic competitive analysis. And I'm like, good, call your executive team. And when you have your Monday morning meeting next week, pose that to the team and come back and your assignment for the week is to come back and tell me what is your competitive analysis procedure going forward. And in that example, I basically just gave you my entire approach to coaching. <laughs> is, you know, now I do have the advantage of having things like a Harvard MBA. So I have, I know what the map of business should look like, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not operating in a vacuum here, but mostly what I do is I say, okay, tell me what your business should look like. And they say, it should look like X. And I say, okay, what does it look like now? And they say, it looks like Y. And I say, great. What steps does, do you need to take? Or, or, you know, what steps should be in place that apparently aren't to get it from Y to X? And I just dig down for details. And honestly, that's, you know, I mean, it just sounds like, you know, quote unquote, common sense question asking, but it is completely informed by NLP. It's the exact same thing I do with an individual if I'm working on a psychological thing. If I may, that's that's exactly the reason I started this podcast and why my website is called the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. It started from the meta model. I, I, I watched people getting coached. I, I learned coaching from a guy named Thomas Leonard a long time ago. Who oh, had, so did I. Oh, oh you did? Mm-hmm. I did not Yes, know. indeed. How cool. Remember those days that he used to have where you do accountability check-ins for five minutes at the top of every hour? Yeah. I have a program where I do that every single day. I do it, I do it via Zoom. They're called Get It Done Groups. And if you go to getitdonegroups.com, you can find out about them. And they're purely an accountability check-in to keep people moving forward. And if you want to join, we would love to have you. I will, I will totally do that. I'll do that as soon as we're done here today. That's fantastic. Wow. Cool. Yeah. They, they worked so well that, you know, when Thomas Leonard uh, left us, you know, I thought, must not let his legacy go unappreciated. Must That's continue. Brilliant. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, but the thing was that um, even from the get-go, even when I was learning from Thomas Leonard, I thought, well, this is, this is amazing. This guy is outstanding. This guy is great. How is he channeling this? From what universe is this coming? But... Um, but I didn't do it just the way that he did. I, I added NLP into it all from the from the get go. And I often after after he, he did leave us way too soon and, and passed on, and um, other NLP, I'm sorry, other coaching things just started materializing as as the de facto, you know, coaching center of the world or whatever. Um, I, I thought, well, how how can anyone do coaching without the meta model? I mean, how can how can you do that? How how is that possible? You know, the meta model seems so basic. You now, know? do the people listening to us know what the meta model is? They know a little bit. Some of them do because I've talked about it before. Okay. Um, in fact, I've done some directed some podcasts so it, where it's just me talking about the meta model specifically. Cool. Okay, so then I'm not going to go into detail, but but I actually want to respond to your question. Your question was, how can coaches do this without the meta model? Yeah. And I have a perspective on that. Uh, so first of all, the meta model is a way of listening for what someone is leaving out of their language and asking targeted questions that get them to recover the, the information they've left out. Perfect. And a lot of times, either somebody has, is not aware of the information they've left out and simply becoming aware of it changes the way they think about a problem, or sometimes they've left something out because they actually never thought it through that deeply at all. Like my CEO example, which was hypothetical, by the way, my CEO had never thought how should competitive analysis get done, right? Like he had, he had never gotten that far in his thinking. Um, 
But the thing, so the thing about the meta model is it takes you from a kind of a higher chunk, a higher chunk statement down to the details. So someone says, wow, you know, we should be doing competitive analysis. And then you say, what specifically does competitive analysis mean? What is competitive analysis? How would you do that? That forces them to then break down the concept of competitive analysis into tinier chunks and figure out how to do it. That is incredibly useful all over the place. However, it is possible, depending upon the level one is in an organization, depending upon, upon what, you know, what, what you do, it is possible to stay at the larger level chunks and be able to solve a problem in terms of those chunks. So for example, if I am a CEO running a company and I say, we need to do competitive analysis and competitive analysis consists of learning who all the competitors are in all of the distribution channels where we're present and then coming up with a list of the different capabilities each one has, the CEO doesn't need to know how to do all those things. Mm -hmm. What they do is they hire a marketing person or, or a strategy person, and they say, okay, strategy person, go find out who all of our competitors are you know, in, in bookstores, and then check out each competitor's product and come back with a list of the product features that differentiate them. So the CEO themselves never has to go to, a, to that lower level of detail that the meta model gives us. Right. The CEO thinks of the world in terms of these much larger chunks, chunks like we need competitive analysis, we need operations, we need financial controls and reporting. And in fact, if you look at any large organization, one of the things that distinguishes people at different levels of the organization is what is the chunk size that they're used to dealing with. Hmm. So a marketing director or, or sorry, a marketing VP actually would think in terms of things like distribution channels and you know competitive positioning and product launches. They don't need to know how many bunny costumes you're going to order for the product launch for your new Easter egg product. They right. just have to know there's going to be a product launch. Right. And they don't need to know how to write the ad copy to get that launched. Correct. Right. So a lot, a lot of streamlining an organization is matching the different people to the different levels, to the different chunk sizes. And it's interesting because... Um, you know, there is certainly this belief that in order to be able to function at the upper levels of an organization, you have to work your way up because you need to learn how all of the things below work. And I would, I would take some level of issue for that with that. I mean, to some degree you do, because you need to know how the puzzle pieces can fit together. You need to know that a product launch, you know, is something very different from a product recall, for example. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I knew that one. Excellent. Well, you're on your way. Uh, Jeff Bezos is hiring, from what I understand, um, as long as you don't mind peeing in a bottle and having an ambulance take you I'm home at doing. night. <laughs> um, um, but but so so although the meta model is useful in doing certain types of diagnoses and in, in figuring things out, I think there is an art to also knowing where to stop, because depending upon the person you're dealing with, you may need to go all the way down to the level of how many bunny costumes you're going to order and how are you going to write the ad copy. Right. And you and I, as people who have spent a lot of our careers self-employed, are keenly aware of that, right. because what I want to think, I want to get up and, excuse me, and think, oh, all I need is a marketing campaign for this new workshop. What I instead have to think is, oh, I need a new marketing campaign, which means I need to figure out what color palette all of my materials are going to be. And then I need to sit down and write the three paragraphs of text, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're, it's funny because when you're a solopreneur, you have to either operate at all of those levels, which is really hard to do, by the way. Very few people 
very, I mean, this, this is, I think one of my, one of my skills that I used to think everyone could do and have since discovered is, is actually quite rare is it's really hard to move from the big picture down to the details and back again. It's most people have a preferred level where they like to operate. And, um, and as a solopreneur, you, you either, well, first of all, you will quickly go out of business if you can't do the very lowest level execution things, right? If no one writes the ad copy, you will not be in business very long. However, it's easy to get sucked into the details and stay at that level and never, never go up and say, well, wait a minute, is this the right marketing campaign? You know, is this, do the financials work? One of the things I do with small business people, the ones who can afford me, and of course they can't afford me after they've paid my fee. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's all about learning life lessons, right? Um, (laughs) One of the things, seriously, though, I won't take a client if I think that taking, if I think that having them hire me would bankrupt them, I don't take them. But uh, (laughs) that said, um, a lot of the times, just the exercise that I walk an entrepreneur through is they say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make an app. I'm a software person. I'm going to make an app and it's going to, it's going to go wild and and make me a million dollars. And I say, okay, well, let's just quickly run through the numbers. How much is the app going to sell for? $2.99. All right. And of the $2.99, Apple takes a third of that. So that's $2 per app that you're going to see, right? So you want to make a million dollars. You've got to sell 500,000 copies of that app. Now, how are you going to get 500,000 people to learn about that app? Oh, that's going to cost money, advertising money, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now you have to add that to the number of of apps that you're going to have to sell. And what you quickly find out is that is that if you want to have a business selling apps, a $3 price point probably isn't going to do it. Um, you know, it's hard enough to support one person at a $3 price point, you know, never mind if you actually want to have an, an entire organization right, right, right. You know, built around you. So, um, you know, so again, this is saying that moving up and down in terms of chunk size is very valuable. It can help you spot deficiencies in the organization, either deficiencies at the tactical level, that's the meta model, or deficiencies at the larger level of strategy, distribution, what the financial model is, things like that. Then that one's a lot harder. It's easy to move down. It's easy to say to somebody, how specifically are you going to to do the competitive analysis? It's a lot harder to know what's missing unless you already have some idea of what the big picture looks like, which is why having an MBA really helps me because I literally just have a checklist in my mind of all the stuff I learned at Harvard Business School. And, you know, I can say, oh, okay, you know, do you have people issues? You know, no. Do you have financial issues? No. Do you have infrastructure issues? And literally, I'm just going through my first year general management course in my head, checking off all the things. And then when I find one where they say, you know, they say risk management, what's that? Then I can go, okay, now we'll talk about that. And so, so in some sense, I know that coaching in its purest form is supposed to be just about asking questions and you're not supposed to, to be a consultant or expertise, but even, even if I'm just asking questions and let's be clear, I I mean, I'm, I'm half consultant and half coach, but even if I'm just asking questions, part of how I'm generating those questions is from my own personal expertise. So, you know, the NLP questions, anyone who's trained in NLP can ask some of the business questions you know, again, you need to have a high level model of what a business is in order to then be able to ask all of the NLP questions to drill down to what's missing. Yeah, that's really great. And I was wondering, just as you were saying that, you know, um, how would if short of going to Harvard and getting an MBA, um, how would someone begin to understand what you just said? Is it just would they take that first 
course that you described? And would that be enough to be able to ask higher chunk courses questions? You know, to get a general familiarity with business, I would just read some uh, some books on basic entrepreneurship, not not on how to write a business plan that you're going to pitch to VCs. We we in America, maybe the worldwide, I don't know, but in America we have fetishized high growth entrepreneurship. You know, everyone has to have a business plan and they have to get a billion dollars in funding and they have to be the next Uber, you know, and God forbid you point out that Uber is not a business, it's a charity. And, you know, they lose ridiculous amounts of money while trapping untold numbers of people in dead-end jobs uh, while shifting all of their costs onto their drivers. And people go, no, but Uber is amazing. I'm like, yeah, but go look at their financials. They're not a business. If they didn't have, have $6 billion worth of venture capital saved up to live off of, Uber has never had a business model that would turn a profit. And this leads people to say, well, you know, what's a business model? I thought all that matters was the number of users, right? We're going to lose a dollar on every sale and make it up in volume, um, right? A business model is just how you make money. And if you buy books like The E-Myth by, I think, Daniel Gilbert, Gerber, Gerber, uh, Gerber. Michael right. Gerber. Yeah. Yeah. The E-Myth or The E-Myth Revisited, I think, is the is the second edition. But basically, you want to find books on small business that help you just understand what all the pieces of business are. And let me be blunt, it's not that hard. I mean, it's it's businesses is the most popular occupation. Like, you know, I mean, that's a general term, but, but basically most people are who aren't frontline workers are some form of business people. And, you know, what that means is the stuff that's written for a business audience tends to be written in simple language and easy to understand. So, right. Right. you know, I've, I haven't sat down to think this through in advance, but I would say if you want to get a model of how a business operates, check out the E-Myth Revisited. Okay. Um, there is something called EOS, EOS, which stands for the Entrepreneur Operating System, which is how to create small businesses. I don't remember the names of the books, but it's really famous. And everyone I've talked to who used it swears by it. And it literally is just a generic template for here's how to run your business. Here's cool. the meetings to have. Here's the people you want to have involved. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And that's EOS. I love, I love the E myth because of the simplicity of the concept, which is basically to find out <clears throat> the business. If you wanted to take the business and replicate it, do it someplace else, so that you didn't have to be the one doing all the different jobs. If you wanted to replicate this business on the other side of town, what systems would you need in order to make that happen? You know, mm -hmm. so that. That question of, you know, how do you replicate this thing and what are the systems involved so that you can hire, you know, somebody off the street and say, here, do this job, do this. These are the steps that you need to do. And then you fill all the different positions. That's that's what it took. I mean, you don't need to know specifically that this is this department is called that or this department is called that. You just need to know how to make the system. The, yeah, I'm trying to find the there's a book, I'm pretty sure it was a book called, I think, Pay Yourself First. Mm. So for example, this is one of the most popular, popular ways that entrepreneurs screw up, which is they don't count their salary as an expense of the business. Instead, they think, oh, I can just take home everything that's left after expenses. And the problem with that is that if what's left after expenses is $5,000, you're not actually taking home enough money to live on. And furthermore, it means that you are not running a business that could ever be handed off to someone else because you're probably not going to be able to hire somebody who would be willing to run the business for $5,000 a year. Right. So even if you're not actually paying yourself in cash, if you treat your business and do your calculations as if you were, that then forces you to build the rest of the business around you know, saving money where need be and being scrupulous in how you spend the money that you do spend so that there is enough left over to pay someone to run the business because otherwise it will never be 
a business that you can step away from. Right. And it also, by the way, probably means you're being underpaid. If you can't afford to pay yourself, if you can't get to the business where you can pay yourself first and then pay the business expenses, then again, you don't have a business. You would probably do better to just go, you know, go get a job at, you know, get some nine don't, to five don't job. Say, don't pays. say Uber driver. Don't say Uber driver. No, no, don't be an Uber driver. <laughs> it's, um, well, that's that's incredibly good advice, and um, probably most of us listening, including myself here, don't think that thoroughly about the the, the structure of our businesses as a business in that way. Um, you know, most sol solopreneurs, and again, I'm including myself here, um, just get out there and start pitching, just start selling. Just and when we make some money, we say, "Oh, good, I've made some money." You know, a NLP practitioner, a hypnotist. You know, it's like, oh. I'll help people quit smoking. And then, yeah, I've got money. I got paid to help them quit smoking. So that's my job. Um, and it's, it works, sort of, you know. Well, yeah. And the thing is, is some people are in fact, are in fact lucky enough. And I'm specifically saying lucky enough because I talk to a lot of people, right? Being an NLP person, I'm always eliciting people's strategies for things. So if somebody is this multi-billionaire and it's because they came up with this amazing idea at the right time, I want to know what their strategies for generating ideas and what I have found is that, that uh, first of all, having any particular idea is, is not even remotely, like there's not that much skill to that. You know, people have thought, you know, prob there are probably tens of thousands of people who independently thought up the idea of ride sharing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I believe Lyft was actually the first one. I don't think Uber was the first one because uh, Uber started as a black car service, not as general ride sharing. And Lyft started as general ride sharing. Um, but but what happens is, of all of the people who come up with that ideas, someone has access to the money to make it happen, or they happen to hire the right person, or they sit next to the NBC anchor person on a flight, and they end up being featured on national news that night. Like, and, and I've been around enough of these at this point. At this point, I just look at it and I go, I go, a tremendous percent of all of this stuff is pure luck. You know, I know a few people who are seven figure coaches, a couple of them appear to have worked their way up to it. But most of the ones I know, when I elicit their strategy for how they did it, it was basically like, oh, well, you know, I had this blog and one day I noticed that like 9,100 billion people were visiting the blog every week. <laughs> and I figured, oh, I wonder if I should like ask them to pay me money. So I put up this form and I said, pay me money. And now I'm making like $9 million a year. Right. There was no grand business strategy. <laughs> the person stumbled on something and for some reason, and they have no idea why their blog attracted a million readers. You know, now they have since rewritten history. Uh, I, there's actually a specific person I'm thinking of with this example. Right. And, you know, this person now is like really big on, on very much representing himself as self-made and they are self-made from the point of having a million subscribers onward. So there is no question what they did with those million visitors a month. What they did was, in fact, really good business. He showed a lot of skill in how he built the business from that point. However, he would probably not have gotten anywhere without that initial, oh, look, there's a million people a month visiting my blog. Mm. You know, there's a gigantic difference between let me imagine something. There's a gigantic difference between someone who can, who can come up with an idea that is going to be insanely popular and then make it insanely popular 
through deliberate action versus somebody who comes up with the idea and just happens to. And I have a very personal story about this, right? And so let me, so everyone listening, the official story is that when I started the Get It Done Guy podcast, I was so brilliant in how I started it that it was exactly the right podcast. And I knew that it was going to be the right podcast. And I knew there was going to be this incredible demand for it. And so, so through hard work and detailed market research, which I can replicate for you for just nine ninety nine a day. Um, oh, sorry, wait, sorry, nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine a month. Um, you know, I made it a success. Here's what happened: I started this podcast basically on Thanksgiving of two thousand seven. I decided just for the hell of it, I wanted to see if I could get into the iTunes top one hundred. So I hired a PR firm. And we mapped out this whole PR campaign because no one had ever, this was before podcasting became, I mean, these days, podcasting is this giant thing. At the time, you know, podcasting was, was a, people actually thought it was on decline, like it had started and then kind of fizzled out. Hmm. Um, But I thought, you know, no one's ever done an actual PR campaign for a podcast before. Let me go ahead and hire a PR firm and we'll, we'll do this whole thing and, and see if we can get the podcast into the top 100. So we scheduled, we, we mapped out a PR campaign and it was scheduled to start on January 1st of 2008. The podcast hit number one on iTunes on December 27th of 2007. Five days, four or five days, five days beforehand. Now think about that for a minute. If it had not hit number one until January 10th, I would have concluded incorrectly that the reason it hit number one was because of the PR campaign. Hmm. In fact, I don't know why it hit number one. No one else knows why it hit number one. It just did. How did enough people even find out about it for it to hit number one? I wasn't doing any marketing or PR. I don't know. Somehow it hit number one. Now, again, 99% of the people who this happens to, either it hits number one on January 10th, and so they erroneously believe that it hit number one because of their efforts, or they have since rewritten history and prefer the narrated version, you know, you prefer the revised version in which they are brilliant and incredibly lucky and all this stuff. Um, so, and this, by the way, I, you know, I've mentally kind of gone too far. It's a very useful belief to believe that you can control your destiny down to the last decimal point, because it really gets you to focus and work hard on things. Whereas at this point, it's like the older I get and the more of these gigantic success stories I get to know personally, the more I realize that, that, you know, luck is the number one factor, absolutely hands down is the number one factor in every person's success who I've ever met. Who so I've, how do we, how do we get more luck? Well, isn't that interesting? What <laughs> form? So there are certain types of luck that, that um, I don't think are controllable, right? And those are things like, oh, I happen to come up with the right product at the right time. So, you know, what Coursera is the, the company that uh, Coursera is a company that takes like Ivy league professors and has them put courses. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Up, right. Right. I was involved in the very first online learning company that existed, and we had virtually exactly the same model. Hmm. We wanted to basically take take Ivy League education to the top instructors, have them create courses and make it available to the masses. Now, we were we were largely motivated by altruism. We really wanted to make that education available widely. But we also you know, we had a whole business model, et cetera. And we identified going in, this was the mid nineties. We said, you know, the only thing that the only, the thing that's the gigantic question mark is, are there enough people who are using the internet and can the bandwidth handle it for us to actually be able to produce these high quality courses? Mm-hmm. At the, and it turned out the answer was no. At, at that time, right. that was not a viable business. 
But however, 15 years later, it was totally viable and is now a billion dollar business. Mm -hmm. Does that mean the current Coursera founders are smarter than we were? No, we mm -hmm. all had the same idea, but huge element of luck. Now, yes, again, as I said before, once you realize you have the winning combination that people want right here and right now, you know, at that point, there's definitely a level of skill that takes over. Can you figure out how to scale and how to replicate this? Can you figure out how to get the word out in a way that doesn't bankrupt you? Because, it, you know, if it costs you $3 to get some, to get a client that's only worth $2 to you, then, right? So skill very much kicks in at a certain point. But, um, but luck is a tremendously large piece of it gigantically large piece. Another piece, and you know, this comes from if you actually model the economy, like I was saying earlier, you, you really use the meta model to dig down. You know how people make money, Doug? Um, what? No. No, no I, I was, I was, I was you, I'm pretty sure you don't. Um, very few people do. Uh, uh, what is the question you ask somebody when you meet them and you want to know how they make money? Uh, how do you make money? No, no, no. If, if, if I were to meet you at a cocktail, at a cocktail party or something. Well, I do, what do you do for work? Right. What is the verb in that sentence? Do. And, and when you are talking to a kid and you want to find out how the kid intends to make money, what do you ask the kid? What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, what do you want to be? Right. So there we have a be. Um, however, neither being nor doing are how you make money. Take a look at where the wealth in our economy is. And when I say the wealth, I mean 99% of the wealth does not come from doing, doing or being anything. It comes from owning. Uh. Okay. Uh. Steve Jobs invented the personal computer industry, by the way. I mean, most people don't seem to remember that Bill Gates worked for Steve Jobs initially. I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't an employee, but, but the way Bill Gates got on the map was by creating Microsoft Basic for the Apple II. Um, and basically, Bill Gates has only ever done one thing, and that's Microsoft, and he's done a pretty shitty job of it. I mean, the man is not particularly competent, which is why it worries the heck out of me that he's in charge of world problems at this point. I'm like, really? Like, you know, with Windows, it was only the blue screen of death. I'm kind of scared about what the heck this man can do now that he has global reach. Um, and in fact, if you read the stories about his involvement in the development of COVID vaccines, it's quite possible that he is personally responsible for the, what I would almost claim is the murder by omission of millions and millions of people in third world countries. He, he basically single-handedly diverted everything to the developed countries that can afford to somehow survive the pandemic while the people in the countries who can't are not going to even see the vaccine for two or three more years. Um, but in any event, enough about my Bill Gates rant. Um, uh, Steve Jobs, on the other hand, yeah. I would claim he invented the personal computer industry. He then took this tiny little computer graphics film company and made computer graphics film an entire genre that, you know, where previously it hadn't really even been on the map. Uh, he then in, he then took the idea of an MP3 player and completely changed the way that we relate to them with the iPod. Then he invented the smartphone. Now, I mean, there was like the BlackBerry was earlier, but, but I mean, the, you know, Steve Jobs' conception of the iPhone was light years past, right? Um, and then he turned software into software as a service and also invented the streaming uh, music industry. I would claim that if money were any indication of contribution to the human race, Bill Gates should be, or, or sorry, uh, Steve Jobs should be worth five or six times what Bill Gates was mm -hmm. worth. Yeah. But he wasn't. 
When Steve Jobs died, he was worth one twentieth of what Bill Gates was worth. And by the way, where do you think his money was? He was worth about $6 billion, and it was mostly Disney stock. Oh, really? Now, why is that? That's because in the mid-1980s, when John Scully fired Steve Jobs from Apple, in protest, Steve Jobs sold all of his Apple, st Apple stock except for one share. So literally, this man's net worth was determined more by that one decision in the mid-1980s than by all of the unbelievable value and change that he brought to the world over the next 40 years. Wow. Bill Gates, on the other hand, actually kept the stock in, his stock in Microsoft. So I, and, and if, if I could pound nothing else home to anyone who's interested in so-called success, change your driving question from what am I going to do to make money to what am I going to own to make money? And maybe the thing you decide you're going to own is your own small business that you're going to work in. But if that's the case, the question to be asking is, what is my small business worth? If I could take my small business and sell it to somebody, what would somebody else be willing to pay for it? And that's how you should be thinking about building your business. Hmm. Not how can I get paid more money, but how can I build something that somebody else would pay for? Wow. Um, and as far you as I'm aware, that's the only way. To small businesses like a, a coaching business. Well, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, are you rich? Can you afford your own jet? <laughs> No, no, I cannot. Right, because you get paid for what you do, not for what you own. <laughs> right? But if you if you had like a video, a video course that you could get a couple of large corporations to buy, mm -hmm. you could then go to some other company that does video courses and you could say, you know what, why don't you buy the rights to my video course for XYZ dollars? And since you own the rights to your own video course, you could get to keep all that money. On the other hand, let's say you went out and raised money from investors and said to the investors, I'm going to develop a video course. And then you develop the video course and you sell it. Well, now you have to give the investors some of the money that you got from that sale. And in fact, the whole trick to entrepreneurship is figuring out how to balance that equation because you need to raise money if you want to do something. And, and if you want to make a business that's going to be worth $100 million, you have to you're going to have to raise money to do that. Like it's it's very hard to do that organically, but you might be able to raise it through bank loans and things like that. Like you don't necessarily have to go to investors, but basically as soon as you are taking other people's money in order to help build the thing you're building, you're going to have to pay them that money back. So we usually with interest or with some type of premium, uh, sorry if I'm getting too, too businessy oh, here, but, um, but it's, it's just a whole different mindset. And when you look at who has money, even, you know, I have friends who have the audacity to say to me, oh, well, you know, I just invest in the stock market. And I'm like, what the hell do you think the stock market is? It's owning a piece of someone else's work. That's what the stock market is. Mm -hmm. The reason that a share of stock has value is because there is some worker who did a bunch of work. And instead of getting paid the value of their work, they got paid less than that. And the, that amount less is called profit. And that profit is distributed to the shareholders. So if you have your money in a stock fund, you are literally making money by taking a piece of what other people have made. And, right. and it is the fact that you own that that sends that in your direction. So and for, so, for our listeners here, Steve. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm a little off topic, sorry. It's, no, it's good, good. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, I, I could talk to you all day for weeks. Um, for the listeners today, in, in the interest of, of running out of time here, um, if they wanted to say, okay, I've listened to this really interesting podcast, I want to make my business better. What are like yep. one or two things that are 
person who is who's a coach in the in doing coach NLP coaching or um, coach university coaching? How how could they take some of these concepts and and improve their business? Sure. So if you're doing coaching, so first of all, um, now I'm using, I, let's take all of my discussion of business as an example, right? You, maybe you're a coach and maybe you're not coaching people in business. Maybe you're coaching people around skiing or snowboarding or something like that. Yeah. You need to know enough of the big chunk pieces. You need to know enough about that skill to be able to then ask questions. You don't necessarily need to be able to drill all the way down to the extreme details. But if I were going to coach someone in boxing, for example, right? I need to know what a left hook is. I need to know what, you know, a defense is and an offense. By the way, I know nothing about boxing. Um, (laughs) Well, I haven't, I haven't even seen Rocky. I mean, that's how little I know about boxing, but, (laughs) but you need to have a high level idea, a high level overview, and you can rely on your client to bring the details because, you know, I, I am not one of these people who believes that a coach has to be an expert in something. I mean, in sports, all that a coach is the outside person who helps the expert figure out what they need to do to be able to push their boundaries. And sometimes it comes with detailed knowledge, right? I mean, if, if you're teaching someone a physical sport, yeah. you know, knowing what it looks like, knowing what a good golf swing, golf swing looks like physically, you know, in terms of the physics involved, yes, that's actually an important part of coaching golfers. Yes. But um, so first of all, and that's why if you have a niche, just learn about that niche, right? I mean, you know, and again, you only, you don't have to know all the answers. You just need to know enough to ask the right questions. So you know, read the e-myth, read about the entrepreneur Ashiv operating system. There is a book that I read called like small profits, big business, something like that. It's a book. It's like a book on bookkeeping. This accountant wrote it because he said, all of my small business people don't know how to think about business. And, um, uh, and, you know, he's like, so I I just laid it all out here so that they'll stop asking me the wrong questions. (laughs) And I read the book and I was like, wow, this book is really good. And um, (laughs) hang on a second. Let me see if I can. Oh, man. While you're searching for that, let me just talk a little bit about about the E-Myth. I've mentioned it on previous podcasts. Um, Michael Gerber's book, I I think, is one of those books that the basic concept of it could be put across in 25 pages, and it's a 350-page book. But nevertheless, those 25 pages are gold. They're really important. And one of the things he says in that book is he said, if you had a choice to buy a business that one had the the best florist in town, and this guy was just an artist with floristry, uh, or if you bought this florist um, kiosk in the mall, but what it came with was a 500-page manual of how to, you know, replicate these kiosks in other malls, and you could, you know, buy that. And it's pretty standard stuff, but it was still complete. Which one would you buy? And of course, the right answer, according to Michael Gerber, is the kiosk because the the first florist has exactly one asset, and it's that guy, that one florist who can be such artistically beautiful about his floristry. But you can't replicate him or hers, right? Exactly. Um, either way, you can't replicate that person. So, um, but what you can replicate is you can print out that manual and you know create another buy another kiosk in another mall across town. You can do that. So it's the structure of the business that's important, not necessarily who's doing it. Yeah, I would, and and you know, I would agree with that. And keep in mind, right, what he just described was owning, not doing. Yeah, yeah. You want you want the kiosk. You don't want to be the one doing the thing. Um, Profit First is uh, is one of the the books. That's the one that talks. I believe it talks about 
paying yourself first. So Profit First is the book that I read that I think is really awesome and amazing. And I am still looking for the the one that's small profits, big business, something like that. Darn it. I wish I remember what it was. It's okay. Um, we appreciate well, now I'm going to be obsessing lead. about this for the rest of the day. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you let me know. I'll put it in the tags. Um, we're going to have to stop in just a minute, but gosh, darn, this is really great. Thank you so much for being here. If people want to find out more about you, Steve or Robbins, how do they, how do they do that? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> it's a long answer. If you want to learn about me as a coach, go to Stever, S-T-E-V-E-R, Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. If you want some of the best personal productivity content ever produced in the podcast universe, go to iTunes.com forward slash Get It Done Guy. Now, it will take you to a feed that is called The Modern Mentor, because when I stepped down, they renamed the feed because, as I knew, but they had to learn the hard way, It is I am an impossible act to follow. So I specifically tied the podcast so much to my personality that when I left, the new host was like, no, I am not even going to try to, <laughs> to, to keep the same title. So if you go to iTunes.com slash Get It Done Guy, episodes one to 587 are my episodes on personal productivity. You can also hear my evolution as a writer and a voiceover artist if you listen to them, because the first, first there, there's some cringeworthy stuff back there at the beginning. Um, and then if you want to learn about... Um, Gee, if you if you want to hear my three three of my top productivity tips delivered in musical theater form, because of course <laughs> oh, I yes. co-wrote a musical about personal productivity, uh, go to worklessanddomore.com and click on the top link. And then finally, what I'm doing these days, and you know, we'll see how this evolves. But um, uh, if you Boy, I'm trying to think here. What I'm actually suddenly now working for another company, and I'm never sure what I can say and what I can't. Under what I am working on using finance and business as a mechanism for social change. I'm pretty sure that I can I can say that much. Uh, with the idea being that if business is the biggest lever that there is these days, let's use business to produce some societally good outcomes to the extent that we can. Nice. And you know, there are forces arrayed against us, but we shall triumph. And if we don't. Oh, well, <laughs> at least we gave it a shot. I know a good zombie apocalypse our army that you could hire. Indeed. <laughs> and in fact, if you watch the video, you will see the general of the zombie army is the one who who does the presentation in the in work less and do more than zombie musical the work. Boy, my 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 <laughs> lips aren't working today. Work less and do more. The zombie musical. The zombie musical. Huh. Well, on that note, Stever Robbins, <laughs> it's lovely to see you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I would love to continue. I don't remember what it was, but there was a topic that we started and then got sidetracked and never got back to. Well, so we'll to listen to the tape and find out. And we'll, absolutely. And then we'll, we'll have you start on again, again if you're willing. Oh, are you kidding? I'm such a ham. It's impossible to shut me up. If you, <laughs> if you give me a platform, I'll just go, 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 go. All right, well, we'll see you again. <laughs> Thank Thanks you. a lot. And I hope that everyone enjoyed listening. Um, no doubt about it. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.